They called her the maggot from Italy's tomb, a black queen who employed a harem of femme fatales. She was a vindictive serpent who poisoned anyone who got in her way. History paints Catherine de' Medici as a dark and malevolent ruler, a merciless mistress hell-bent on keeping the French crown for herself. But what if that's not really true? Reduced in many tellings to a tale of outrageous sexual intrigue, Catherine de' Medici's story is more complex than the gossips of her day would have us believe. Some say she deployed the beautiful women of her court, sending them out to ensnare men with their feminine wiles. But were Catherine and her flying squadron of ladies really the original femme fatales? Or did they simply commit the crime of wanting things that men said they couldn't have? Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're continuing our five-part special on femme fatales. These women have a bad reputation, and sometimes they are indeed criminal. But if you've listened to this show, you know criminal is a relative term. Some of these women were criminalized simply because they were powerful. Others were only criminals if they ended up in the wrong country's court of law. Today, we'll examine the life of Catherine de' Medici, a one-time ruler of France whose unashamed power moves led some to declare her Madame Le Serpent. Surrounded by a household of female companions known as her Flying Squadron, Catherine made an unforgettable mark in French history. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
In the right hands, words have the ability to bring the truth to light. However, words can also be weaponized to alter the very fabric of history and to destroy a person's reputation. Traditionally, people who publish false defamatory statements are known as libelers. During Catherine's reign, a series of conflicts known as the Wars of Religion tore France apart. When Catherine hesitated to pick a side, libelers fueled a damaging narrative that questioned her ability to rule. But she wasn't their only victim. These writers targeted those in her innermost circle, her ladies-in-waiting. People sometimes refer to Catherine's household as the Flying Squadron, a bevy of promiscuous femme fatales who preyed on the hearts and minds of men. But while some of these women were certainly very beautiful and influential, contemporary historians have refuted the claim that they engaged in sexual relations on Catherine's behalf. This is because Catherine's standing as a female ruler was closely scrutinized. When one of her ladies-in-waiting entangled themselves in scandal, Catherine's own reputation took a hit. Needless to say, the salacious stories surrounding Catherine's flying squadron is more likely than not a tale of fiction. But while it's difficult for us to separate the truth from the legend, we can tell you one thing for certain. Women in Catherine's court had the power to change the course of history. But the legend of Catherine de' Medici begins long before she had a court full of ladies-in-waiting. It starts, in fact, in Italy with two power-hungry families and a dream of everlasting legacy. Catherine's father, Lorenzo II, descended from the celebrated house of Medici. Her mother, Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne, was a fabulously wealthy French countess. The pair married thanks to the influence of Lorenzo's uncle, Pope Leo X, and Madeleine's kinsman, King Francis I of France. These men wanted to merge the greatest house of Italy with the royal bloodline of France. They hoped that this new power couple would birth a long line of descendants who would strengthen the bond between France and Italy. So it's safe to say that hopes rode high on the marriage producing many heirs. But just weeks after Catherine was born on April 13, 1519, both her parents died. Now an orphan, Catherine's livelihood hung in the very balance, as did the dreams of the men who orchestrated her birth. Fortunately, the newly elected Pope Clement VII, who was also Leo X's illegitimate cousin, arranged a marriage that would return her to a life of prosperity. In the fall of 1533, 14-year-old Catherine arrived in Marseille to marry 14-year-old Henry, Duke of Orléans and second son of the King of France. She was marrying into the over 200-year-old Valois dynasty. It was what her parents would have wanted. Unfortunately, Henry was less than thrilled about the match. Though Catherine was incredibly rich, kind, and intelligent, she was considered far from beautiful. And so, he quickly turned his gaze upon other women. Luckily, Catherine still had the favor of her father-in-law, King Francis I. Under his tutelage, Catherine learned the intricacies of the French court and saw how a wise ruler captivated their people. 
To Francis, to seem regal was to be regal, and that meant commissioning great works of art, throwing lavish parties, and wearing the latest fashions. But above all else, Francis emphasized the importance of beauty. He understood that beautiful things had the power to beguile his people into submission, especially when those beautiful things were women. And while Catherine wasn't celebrated for her looks, Francis found his daughter-in-law's quick wit and spirit irresistibly charming. However, his feelings about Catherine didn't last long. When Pope Clement VII died in September of 1534, the French crown could no longer collect the rest of her dowry. Now an Italian heiress with no fortune, Catherine was just a bad investment. But even as she lost value in the eyes of the crown, Catherine moved closer to power. In 1536, Henry's older brother, the Dauphin of France, died. Suddenly, Catherine and Henry were next in line to inherit the throne. That meant that all eyes turned to Catherine, who now carried the burden of continuing the Valois line. But after several years of marriage, 17-year-old Catherine still hadn't produced an heir. People began to whisper, sowing rumors of infertility. In those days, not producing children was a minor tragedy. For a future queen, it was a shameful disaster for the entire country. Then again, it's likely her husband's disinterest contributed to the delayed pregnancy. By 1538, Henry was madly in love with the beautiful Diane de Poitiers. She was a widow in the royal court who had been tasked to keep the young man in line. Dion performed her duties impeccably. Even though she was 19 years his senior, Henry fell completely under her control, and the 38-year-old quasi-governess became his mistress. But she wasn't his only lover. Henry had several mistresses, one of whom gave birth to a baby girl. For Catherine, the news wasn't just embarrassing, it was potentially catastrophic. As questions swirled about Catherine's ability to produce an heir, higher powers spoke about ways to end her marriage to Henry. Fortunately, on January 19, 1544, Catherine gave birth to a healthy baby boy. Her place as the Dauphine of France was now safe. However, it seems that Henry couldn't care less about his growing family. He was still too in love with his mistress, Diane. He showered her with magnificent jewels, sprawling estates, and even had the letters H and D inscribed throughout palace walls. Even when King Francis I died in March of 1547 and Catherine became Queen Consort of France, she had limited power of her own. For instance, as the new king, Henry controlled who joined Catherine's household of ladies-in-waiting. For the next decade or so, Catherine was forced to swallow her pride as she was eclipsed by her husband's beautiful mistress. Around the same time, another fair maiden cast a shadow on Catherine's reign. Françoise de Rohan was living the 16th century dream. As one of the youngest members in Catherine's household, she had access to the country's best education, plus invites to the most lavish balls and festivals. 
The privilege came thanks to her powerful pedigree. Her father descended from the House of Roa, and her mother had familial ties to the House of Navarre. This meant that Francoise was destined for greatness, and for a woman in the 16th century, that meant a prosperous marriage. There wasn't much else a woman could realistically hope for herself. Well, perhaps a love match, but those were a rarity. Still, when the dashing Duke, 22-year-old Jacques de Savoie, swept into her life, it seemed like love might be in her cards after all. Jacques was a brilliant soldier who led France to countless victories. He had the favor of Catherine's husband, King Henry II, as well as members of the very powerful Guise family. When he wasn't leading a fight on the battlefield, it's assumed that Jacques indulged himself in the luxuries of the royal court, specifically the women. But while late night dalliances were par for the course, Catherine demanded that her demoiselles, or the youngest ladies in her entourage, protect their virtue at all costs. Because when a young woman entered her household, Catherine assumed the responsibility of securing their marriage prospects. As such, demoiselles were closely monitored. But despite the constant supervision, it seems that 18-year-old Francoise de Roa managed to sneak away. And in 1553, she began a secret relationship with Jacques de Savoie. The starry-eyed beauty fell deliriously in love with the valiant soldier, which set the stage for trouble. While Francoise descended from a perfectly respectable family, she was closely linked with the House of Bourbon, who were staunchly Protestant. That was a big problem because Jacques and his sword were aligned with the nation's Catholics. But their differences in dogma didn't trouble the young lovers, and their courtship continued for a number of years. Until 1556, when, according to Francoise, Jacques agreed to marry her. However, there was a catch. Jacques demanded that their union remain a secret, and Francoise agreed. Now considering themselves husband and wife, they consummated their marriage with abandon. By the summertime, Francoise was pregnant. Understandably, the mother-to-be was eager to make her relationship public. After all, her honor was on the line. But when she pressed Jacques to come forward and honor their marriage in the church, he refused. And then, like a slap in the face, he questioned whether or not he was even the father of her child. Meanwhile, when Catherine discovered the news, she was apoplectic. She chastised Francoise, as well as the governess entrusted to keep her in check. But it was all in vain. Francoise was no longer a virgin, and word spread like wildfire. To prevent further damage, Catherine forced her lady-in-waiting into hiding. Francoise took shelter at the home of her cousin, Jean d'Albray, and on March 24, 1557, she gave birth to a baby boy. Fortunately for Francoise, Catherine held a somewhat progressive view of women. While she demanded that the ladies in her household abide by a strict code of conduct, she understood that romantic trysts and illegitimate babies were to be expected on occasion. So when the heat died down, Catherine invited the young mother back to court. 
the gesture signaled that Francoise still had the queen's favor and was not ruined after all. However, Francoise wanted more than just her mistress's patronage. She wanted her reputation fully restored and her child legitimized. And the only person who could make that happen was Jacques de Savoie. But making an honest woman out of Francoise was the last thing on his mind. As his allure grew year by year, Jacques courted a string of women from families far more noble than Francoise. At one point, Jacques was even in talks to marry Elizabeth I, the Queen of England. As such, he refused to acknowledge his marriage with Francoise or his son. So in the spring of 1559, Francoise began the fight of her life. She, quote, sued him for breach of promise. To the world, it looked like a beautiful woman doing her best to ruin a good man. And that narrative rarely ends well for the woman in question. Up next, Francoise's fight for justice tarnishes Catherine's reputation. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the podcast series Cults. Be sure to check out our four-part special on miracle healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple, to Charles Manson and the Manson family, to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the spring of 1559, Demoiselle Francoise de Rohan sued her lover, Jacques de Savoie, for refusing to marry her. When the queen consort, Catherine de Medici, heard the news, she was furious. The lawsuit was highly publicized and brought shame upon Catherine's entire household. And Catherine's reputation was already on the rocks. While she had produced several male heirs, she was still considered a lowly foreigner, unworthy of the crown. To make matters worse, later that summer on June 30th, Catherine's husband, King Henry II, died in a horrific jousting accident. Catherine's 15-year-old son, Francis II, became the new King of France, and Catherine was demoted to the rank of Queen Mother. Meanwhile, 
Francis's wife, Mary Stuart, also known as Mary Queen of Scots, ascended to the rank of Queen Consort. And here's where things get more complicated. Mary was associated with the House of Guise, one of the most powerful Catholic families in the country. Because of this connection, Mary's uncles became King Francis's most trusted advisors, giving the Guise family great influence over the kingdom. This also meant that those of the Catholic faith rose in rank and prestige at the court, including the skilled soldier, 27-year-old Jacques de Savoie. So when Françoise accused Jacques of fraud, she was essentially pitting her mistress, Catherine de' Medici, against the House of Guise. This left Catherine in a rather uncomfortable position. Whether or not Françoise understood this, she went full steam ahead. In 1559, she stood before a tribunal of Catholic bishops with evidence of her relationship with Jacques. She had love letters he'd written her and brought forth several servants as her witnesses, a few of whom even stumbled upon Françoise and Jacques while they were having sex. Meanwhile, Jacques claimed these were all lies, to discredit Françoise, he brought forth his own witnesses. But instead of lowly servants, he had a string of noble men and women testify against her character, one of them being her very own mistress, Catherine de' Medici. Catherine likely took part in the depositions for two reasons. First, the shrewd Queen Mother knew she had to fall in line with the powerful Guises and their allies. Second, the high-profile case put a spotlight on the women at court and suggested that Catherine and her entourage were all sexually depraved, promiscuous women. To save her household from scandal, she had to do some damage control. So in August of 1559, Catherine stood against her lady-in-waiting. She described Françoise as deceitful and defiant, and also suggested that the demoiselle had attempted to terminate the pregnancy. Which begged the question, if Françoise and Jacques were really married, why would she feel the need to have an abortion? Unless Françoise's son had been fathered by another man. While unproven, the theory was enough to ruin Françoise's reputation for good, seemingly bringing her story to an end, at least for now. Meanwhile, France's political landscape continued shifting around the gossiping courtiers. In December of 1560, Catherine's eldest son, King Francis II, died of an ear infection, and with him fell the power of his wife's Catholic house, the Guises. Catherine's 10-year-old son, Charles IX, ascended to the throne, but he was considered too young to rule. In his place, the next prince of blood, a male descendant of royal lineage, would take on the duties as king regent. That honor was likely to have fallen to Antoine de Bourbon, but Catherine had other plans. Earlier that fall, Antoine's staunchly Protestant brother, Louis de Bourbon, was accused of levying troops against the Guise brothers. This was known as the failed Conspiracy of Amboise and led to a series of military conflicts that culminated in the First War of Religion. 
And now, as one of the chief conspirators, Louis's life was in jeopardy. Catherine used this to her advantage and accused Antoine of conspiring with his brother. He had little choice but to profess his innocence and prove his allegiance to the crown. And the best way he could do that was by declining his right to rule as regent. In his place, 41-year-old Catherine assumed the role of queen regent. Catherine was now the most powerful person in the kingdom, but unlike her predecessors who fanned the flames of bloody conflict, she championed religious tolerance and promoted peace. In an act of good faith, Catherine spared both Antoine and Louis' lives, and in return for signing away his rights to the regency, Antoine was promoted to the position of lieutenant general. And just like that, the Protestant House of Bourbon suddenly had more political sway than the Catholic Guises. But it wasn't just the major players who felt the effects of Catherine's orchestrated power shifts. The new political landscape gave the ruined Françoise de Rois a powerful ally. You might recall that during her pregnancy, Françoise took shelter with her cousin, a woman named Jeanne d'Albray, well, Jean was married to Antoine de Bourbon, the crown's new lieutenant general. Flexing her newfound muscle, Françoise rallied the might of the House of Bourbon. They demanded that Jacques de Savoie be a man of his word and finally marry Françoise. And still, Jacques refused. The Catholic Church still held sway over the courts, and as Jacques was one of the church's darlings, they ruled in his favor and threw out the case. Of course, this only fed the growing animosity between the two religions. Protestants took the ruling as another sign of corruption within the Catholic Church, and so the ever-tenacious Françoise and her Protestant allies kept up the legal fight. But when the Duke of Guise was assassinated in February of 1563, Jacques lost one of his best friends. So he sought comfort with the Duke's beautiful widow, Anne d'Est, the Duchess de Guise and one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. The two fell in love and made plans for a grand wedding in the spring of 1566. Most women in Françoise's position might have called it quits, but Françoise wouldn't let something like holy matrimony stop her from getting what was promised. Françoise continued her legal case, making appeal after appeal. Her son Jacques even gave himself the surname de Savoie. This also led a smear campaign against Jacques' new bride, since it alluded to the idea that Anne was an adulteress for marrying a man who was already married. With the benefit of hindsight, the story is complex and paints Jacques in a poor light. However, at the time, most people likely saw two beautiful women fighting over one honorable man. Both of them determined to stake their claim. Fortunately, Anne d'Est was a cunning, thoughtful woman and arranged a promising compromise with Françoise. Through her family connections, she ensured that Françoise received land, money, and a respectable title. 
Francoise's son Henri was also legitimized and was offered a title as long as he converted to Catholicism. Pleased with these terms, Francoise made a public statement to end the feud once and for all. After 21 years of legal battles, she had finally won the respect and validation she so desperately wanted. And her quest to legitimize her child was finally over. Unfortunately, her son was her downfall. In 1581, 24-year-old Henri was arrested for petty crimes, shattering Francoise's already fragile reputation. Then, to make matters worse, Henri failed to live up to the stipulations of the agreement. Instead of converting to Catholicism, he led a Protestant army onto his mother's property in 1587. Horrified, Francoise reached out to her former mistress. But this time around, Catherine wasn't so kind. She still felt the sting of betrayal and refused to help. So, Francoise lived out the remainder of her life in disgrace, a ruined woman. Needless to say, libelers flocked to the story of Francoise de Rois with abandon. They spun defamatory tales of Catherine's corruption and how she nurtured a household of sexually promiscuous women. But in reality, Catherine took the reputation of her ladies-in-waiting very seriously. When she finally had the power to choose her own entourage, she carefully selected women of good pedigree, intelligence, and moral standing. However, that's not to say that Catherine shied away from capitalizing on her household's good looks. After all, her father-in-law had taught her well. Catherine understood that beautiful things had the power to captivate. And no one beguiled men quite like Isabelle de Lemoy. Up next, Isabelle de Lemoy bewitches a prince of blood. Now, back to the story. Amongst the shining stars in Catherine de' Medici's household, no one captivated the attention of men like Isabelle de Lemoy. She was young, she was charming, and she was breathtaking. She was even immortalized by poet Pierre de Ronsard. Considering she inspired works of art, it's likely that Catherine also saw an opportunity to wield Isabelle's charms for the greater good. In 1560, the first of many wars of religion was brewing. The country was bitterly divided and the tension was palpable. Even amidst the extravagances of French court, this was because the two houses entrusted to advise the royal Valois family were in direct opposition with each other. The House of Guise fought on behalf of Catholicism, while the House of Bourbon lobbied for the Protestant faith. To Catherine, both houses were dangerous to the Valois dynasty. Unfortunately, despite her role as queen regent, Catherine couldn't cut ties with either house. Both were too powerful, and perhaps more importantly, too loved by the citizens of France. But with neither side willing to surrender, it was up to Catherine to find a favorable compromise. So in the spring of 1563, the queen regent brought the leaders of the opposing factions together to try and reach a treaty. 
While the men spoke of war and retribution, Catherine spoke of pacification and tolerance. To help make her case, she invited her esteemed advisors, as well as her top ladies-in-waiting to the negotiations, including Isabelle de Limoy. Records of the meeting are scarce, but it seems that Isabelle caught the attention of Louis de Bourbon, one of the leaders of the Protestant movement. Louis was entranced by Isabelle, and the two began a scandalous affair right around the time that Louis agreed to Catherine's Edict of Amboise. The treaty allowed Protestants to practice their faith, but limited the places where followers could worship. As we've already discussed, love affairs weren't uncommon at the royal court. This is likely because for centuries, Catholicism was the dominant religion in France, allowing followers to pay for absolution or simply work off their guilt with good deeds. However, the new Protestant religion condemned these practices and pushed for reform. They believed the only path to salvation was through faith alone something Protestant families like the House of Bourbon stood against, at least in theory. Louis de Bourbon was one of the most recognizable members of the French Protestant movement. The married man was expected to lead by example as dictated by his faith. Instead, Louis ignored his vows and worshipped at the altar of his mistress, Isabelle de Limoy. What's more, he seemed to lose interest in the Protestant cause altogether. He started skipping sermons and indulged himself at court for longer and longer periods of time, all because of Isabel. Protestant leaders begged him to end the affair. They worried that Louis would bring the entire movement to ruin. But despite their pleas, Louis wouldn't break ties with the beautiful Isabel. He was head over heels in love, and his allies had their hands tied. Unable to attack their own leader, both Protestant and Catholic libelers began a vicious campaign against Catherine and the women in her court. They suggested the Queen Regent ordered Isabel to seduce Louis into signing the Edict of Amboise, a pact that both Protestants and Catholics disliked. However, the Edict of Amboise helped secure a few more years of peace in the bitterly divided realm. As such, Catherine likely found the relationship beneficial. The more Louis took comfort in the arms of his mistress, the less likely he was to take up arms against his countrymen. But while the Edict of Amboise held together a fragile peace, Catherine had other things to worry about. She knew that the centuries-old Valois family line was on shaky ground. Her teenage son, King Charles IX, lacked the maturity and experience needed to instill public confidence. So in 1564, Catherine took 14-year-old Charles on a 27-month tour of the kingdom so that he could earn the love and respect of his people. In a show of support, the entire French court traveled along with the royal family. Isabelle joined her mistress, attending all of the necessary functions. But while touring the city of Dijon, Isabelle became rather unwell. The diagnosis? Pregnancy. Normally, unmarried women went into hiding during an unplanned pregnancy, 
returning to society only after their delivery. This afforded them a level of secrecy to rise above the scandal. However, when Isabel gave birth during the Grand Tour, there was no hiding that she'd engaged in promiscuous activities. As a result, her reputation was tarnished. She was labeled a sexual deviant and banished from court. But unlike most other noble women in a similar predicament, Isabel wasn't allowed to return to her own home. Instead, Catherine forced her into hiding, sending her to a Franciscan convent. It was a fall from grace made all the worse by the death of her baby. At first glance, the way Catherine treated Isabel might make her look like a cruel and unforgiving queen. She had clearly profited from Isabel's powers of persuasion during the Amboise negotiations. Then Isabel's relationship with Louis had dissuaded the Protestant leader from instigating more military campaigns. But now, when Isabel needed her mistress's help, Catherine turned her back on a woman in her court. However, contemporary historians have discovered that things weren't quite what they seemed. Unearthed dossiers have revealed that Catherine shielded Isabel from a fate far worse than a bad reputation. You see, around the time she was pregnant, Isabel was accused of treason. According to the dossiers of Bishop Lobopin, the Count of Molevrier made a ghastly accusation. He charged Isabel with attempting to kill Charles de Bourbon. As Charles was also a prince of blood, an attempt on his life was considered treason. If found guilty, Isabel would undoubtedly be executed. But despite the grave nature of these claims, Catherine managed to keep it all under wraps. A secret inquest into the charges was launched, and both Isabel and the Count gave their depositions. Isabel maintained her innocence and accused the Count of being a troublemaker. Meanwhile, the Count spun an elaborate tale, claiming that Isabel despised Charles de Bourbon and wanted to poison him with, quote, a certain white powder. While the Count was known to tell colorful tales in jest, it seems that there was perhaps some truth to his accusation. According to Isabelle, she was on particularly bad terms with Charles and his wife, Philippe de Montespidon. Philippe held a position of power over Isabelle within Catherine's royal entourage. According to Isabelle, both Charles and Philippe were unbearably cruel, and she was one of their favorite targets at court. Why? Well, Isabelle was a beautiful Catholic woman who had the Protestant leader, Louis de Bourbon, wrapped around her finger. In other words, she was a dangerous woman, a femme fatale. It's possible that Charles and Philippe felt threatened by Isabelle's untapped power and sought to bring her down before she did any more damage to the Protestant movement. Isabelle's open resentment of Charles and Philippe suggests a motive for the alleged assassination attempt. However, based on the evidence, or lack thereof, it's likely that Isabelle was innocent. Still, Catherine understood the gravity of the accusation and what it would mean. Were Isabelle to publicly face the implications of treason, there would be no coming back. 
So it seems that Catherine kept the entire case discreet and forced Isabel into hiding until the allegations were discredited. When the dust settled in 1566, Catherine invited the disgraced noblewoman back to court. Isabel's good name was restored, leaving her free to marry a fabulously wealthy financier. It was a happy ending that Catherine seemed unable to reach for herself. Although three of her sons ascended to the throne, each of them lacked the passion, intelligence, and foresight to lead France out of civil unrest. To protect the Valois dynasty, Catherine took the helm of a divided country that seemed intent on tearing itself apart. That's not to say that Catherine was without fault. Though she was a champion of religious tolerance, in the fall of 1572, she was finally forced to choose a side. That year, her son, King Charles IX, conspired with the Protestant movement. It was a move Catherine believed might provoke war with the Catholic nation of Spain. So to prevent further bloodshed, Catherine made a horrific decision. She gave the orders to kill the leaders of the French Protestant movement. However, instead of the swift assassination of a few Protestant figureheads, a wave of bitter resentment swept the entire country. French Catholics joined the slaughter and thousands of Protestants were killed in what was known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Needless to say, this left a bloody stain on Catherine's reputation. But despite her tattered image, Catherine still had a country to run. To pacify any burgeoning thoughts of insurrection, Catherine attempted to beguile her subjects with spectacle. Like her father-in-law had taught her, nothing could captivate a powerful man quite like a beautiful woman. And Catherine had plenty of those. In 1573, Catherine threw a lavish party to celebrate the accession of her son, Henri de Valois, as the King of Poland. To win the respect of Polish ambassadors, 16 of her ladies-in-waiting performed an elaborate dance in the opulence of the Tuileries Palace. The French poet Pierre de Ronsard described the dancers as a flock of birds flying together as one. In his 49th sonnet, he writes, Now it was round, now long, now narrow, now in a point, in a triangle as one sees the squadron of the crane escaping the cold. Historians believe that Rossard's descriptions inspired the term for Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, the flying squadron. But instead of praising these women as talented dancers, Leiblers used the term to condemn Catherine and her household of femme fatales. Unfortunately, it seems that her attempt to beguile her subjects with beauty backfired and the image of Catherine's alluring women became a cudgel used to batter her reputation. After all, they needed someone to blame. The wars of religion had taken its toll and left the country of France broke, broken, and bitter. 
When Catherine died in 1589 at the age of 69, libel writers were free to tear her legacy apart. But they weren't content to focus their attention on the queen regent who'd brokered fragile peace. The writers also turned their pens on her ladies-in-waiting. As such, it's believed that libelers perpetuated the myth of the sexualized, dangerous flying squadron to color Catherine's reign. In their hands, the women of Catherine's court were reduced to scheming temptresses who brought the men of France to their knees. And as so often happens, history was no match for legend. Stories speak of Catherine's prowess as a conniving queen mother and regent of France. In reality, she was just a woman who played the hand she was dealt and refused to fold when the chips were down. Hers is the kind of story for which men are often celebrated as heroes, but women well, they're cruelly demoted to the role of femme fatale, an untrustworthy villain who got what she deserved. But now you know that's not the case. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part three of our five-part Femme Fatale series, where we'll look at the infamous Sparrows of the KGB. For more information on Catherine de' Medici, amongst the many sources we used, we found the books Catherine de' Medici, Renaissance Queen of France by Leone Frida and Scandal and Reputation at the Court of Catherine de' Medici by Una McElvena, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Gatovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Jane O, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>